You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello, this is uh, Abraham. And Ryan O. And so this is Why We Do What We Do. And I'm going to start off, as I like to do sometimes, by I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Ooh, all right. Let's, let's hear it. Okay. Well, just one to start. So first, Ryan O., have you ever been in a situation, I mean, you personally, really, uh, where you saw something horrible or maybe an emergency happening um, in real life? Like, has that ever happened to you? Yes. Uh, oh, well, let's talk about it. Okay. So one time that I recall, uh, this is unfortunately happened a couple of times, like I've driven up on car wrecks. Okay. And so um, I can think of three distinct ones and one I was like way too little and okay. that was just not really my responsibility to kind of do anything which we'll but talk I, about a little bit more <laughs> I remember my dad yeah I remember my dad stopping and whatnot yeah. um one when I was driving back from grad school actually and I stopped but there was a bunch of other people that stopped and kind of helped out okay um and then there was one other one that I can distinctly remember as well so like had those sort of things happen. And what did you do when you were in the situation? Let, let's go to the third one. So the third one, uh, I've got as close to like stopping and then like calling 911, but I was not there in a situation to where like I was actually like helping somebody like immediately. Okay. Like hands on. Have you ever been in a place where you did have to like help someone hands on? Yes, I have. But like okay. it was primarily usually like when I was working in some sort of um, setting in which I was providing active treatment. Ah, I someone, see. Right? Okay, so that may be a little bit different than yeah. what we're talking about today. Yeah. So one thing and that has been noticed is that when there is a a large group of people, um, often, I mean, you think of like a crowded street in an urban area or something like that, or even maybe in a mall, and some kind of emergency takes place where some kind of intervention is needed, either someone's being attacked or they're having some kind of medical emergency, what has been noticed is that relatively few people will jump in and help in the situation like that when they're in a big crowd. However, if there's only a few people around, maybe only one or two, you know, maybe smaller than that, but the, the smaller the number, the more correlation there is, the more likely that someone in that group is to jump in and offer their assistance in some way. Okay. And there have been a lot of infamous examples of this happening and so this has become known in social psychology as what's called the bystander effect. And I mean, it basically it is what it says that it sounds like, right? Is that you're someone who's a bystander. You are sort of observing a thing that's taking place. And rather than intervening, you um, you either watch or you go away or you you know, do something other than help. Right. Yeah. And there are some reasons think, that that might happen. But yeah, I think uh, the ones that are probably most relevant and people can probably relate to most quickly is like you'll see something tragic happening on TV and you'll see a ton of people filming as opposed to helping. Which, oh, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been some like some movies have sort of used that and, and how they portray emergency situations as well. And so, yeah, this episode, um, this is the why why do we bystander effect? Um, and as we'll see, I'm going to ask the question instead, why don't we bystander effect? <laughs> um, and so really what we're going to be talking about and we're going to get into when this does take place, but this might actually be more of an exception than a rule or, you know, they happen in a more complicated way than just the size of the group. Yeah. So my experiences, I've, I feel like I could say I've been on both ends of the spectrum of like helping or sitting and watching. Okay. Um, one did come to mind, uh, something at work where, uh, it was a, 
so I work in a place in which there can be crises quite frequently um, as our definition and like we have very good systems around that. But my role doesn't partake in handling those now, but everybody's trained to jump in and get involved. Um, but this one was like really outside of the typical sort of ones that we deal with. Um, and we were all in a meeting and quite a few of us have all been extensively trained on how to respond to those sort of things. And everyone sat there for a second, mm-hmm. um, before someone kind of took off. So I guess there's, there's been both ends of the spectrum I've definitely experienced. Okay. Um, so in general, it's like this, we experience a situation where something horrible, frightening happens and you just don't move. Right. Yeah. Um, you might just watch, you might like try and escape. I mean, it sort of depends on the situation, but yeah, it is, it is not, it is doing something basically other than providing assistance or jumping into that situation. Yeah. So I've seen this being brought into and kind of like overextended sometimes or properly maybe extended. I don't know. I guess we'll find out (laughs) as we get more into this, like into workplaces. So like that might be people actively performing CPR in the public and Mm. like people responding to different types of emergencies in uh, hospital settings, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So essentially what happens is that there's just, there seems to be that there's a, a, decreased likelihood of someone actually acting in those situations. And this is talked about as this like diffusion of responsibility, which is to say that if there's a large enough group around everyone in the group, according to this, you know, idea of diffusion of responsibility feels slightly less responsible for intervening Mm -hmm. because there are so many people that it's sort of like that responsibility is spread along among many people or just whatever the situation is. At least it's not, it's not me if I'm in, you know, if I'm there or if it's not you. Um, And that's, it's that sense of I'm not responsible for dealing with this because there's so many other people here. Someone else is going to be able to do that. There are some other reasons that people might sort of justify not jumping in on a situation that looks like there needs to be an intervention. And one of them is kind of linked to this idea of the responsibility is you might not know what's going on. It might be very confusing to see, you know, people who are friendly with each other might get in sort of a scuffle or some kind of fight that's not really an altercation. They're not actually trying to hurt each other. Um, or, and so you don't know, like you just, you can't necessarily look at a situation and know right away whether or not it is an emergency, whether or not intervention is warranted in that situation. Um, and you know, you have to comprehend that that's what's going on in order to make a decision to act. Right. Mm -hmm. Another one is that if you feel like it's an emergency where you don't have the kind of competence needed to intervene. So for example, if you've never been, if you've never seen someone have a seizure and you've never been trained on how to respond to someone who's having a seizure, you might look at that and say like, I'm going to do more harm than good. Right. And like, I, I know what's happening. It's not that I don't understand it. I'm not confused about the situation, but I have absolutely no idea what I could possibly be doing yeah, right so now. You feel a lot less competent in the situation. Exactly. Or similarly to that is you just you don't know what you could possibly be doing, Um, especially if it's something where you are maybe slightly removed, where it's like it's on it's across a busy intersection or it's somewhere where you can see what's happening, but you you sort of feel helpless. You don't really know what you could be doing to try and intervene um, and what's going on. Um, People are far away or they're on you know you maybe can see out a window something's happening below you. It's difficult, difficult to know exactly what you can do. Um, another one that I've thought of is we're in an, a particular time in history, I guess, where people will do sort of performance art pieces out in public that might look like an emergency, but they're yeah. really more part of an art. And it would be unfortunate to go tackle someone um, who is doing a performance 
um, and and then try and, and help them um, when they were trying to maybe communicate in some way via their art form. And I mean, that's, that's just it overlays with some of the things we've already discussed. You don't really know what's going on. Um, you're not really sure what to do. And um, this might not even be an emergency. Right. And then another thing um, that I thought about and has been talked about is if you trying to intervene just means that there's going to be one more victim in that situation. It's, you know, if there's really literally nothing that could be done, if you see, um, I thought of an example of a building, a burning building. Now that might not be a great example because there might be some things that you can do in that situation. But I mean, if you see something, um, someone's getting attacked by a shark, like, do you jump in the water and try and wrestle them away from the shark? Because what's probably going to happen is the shark has two lunches instead of one. You know what I mean? Rather than it. Um, so you're not you really don't even necessarily help by going in and trying to do some kind of some kind of intervention in that situation, because like you, you just don't, you don't have the capacity. And that, again, goes back to feeling helpless um, and what to do or unclear on what to do. So it it's just difficult that there's a lot of things that might be going on rather than just, well, there's a lot of people here. I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. So there was one infamous example. Yeah. Kitty Genovese. Yeah. Or right. I heard it. I thought I heard it. Genovese. I don't know. I heard the others. I heard the others from, I mean, I don't know for sure. Yeah. I guess I heard that from a few different sources last night when I was oh. like finishing up my notes. I'll trust you then. Um, yeah, so do you want to describe that situation? Yeah, so this was back in the 60s. Um, Kitty Genovese was coming home late at night. I think she worked at a bar. It was about 3 a.m. or something. So she comes home, and she's attacked in the parking lot of her apartment building. Um, again, very, very late at night uh, or early in, early in the morning. Was however, the parking lot or the street? I think it was a parking lot. I was told the street. No, maybe it's the street. My point was I've seen both. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's unclear. Maybe we're unclear at least. So anyway, uh, she was only about a hundred feet away from the door to her building. That's maybe the relevant features. So she was on her way there. She was attacked. And when this was originally reported, it was reported as there being, you know, a bunch of witnesses and nobody did anything. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you can you can generally assume that if it's 3 a.m., there's probably not going to be a bunch of witnesses regardless of what's going on. But um, it was actually the case that if you look at the police reports, there were only a few people that actually heard um, anything at all. Of the few that heard what was going on, only a few of them could even see what was going on. Of the few that could see what was going on, only a few of them could really perceive that this was actually some kind of, a, of an emergency. Um, and of those people who were could see this and perceived that it was an emergency, um, at least one person immediately shouted out of their apartment to the person who was attacking. They were on an, uh, a higher story, I believe. So they yelled out their window, um, and and at least somebody did call the police. Um, and this all happened relatively soon after she was attacked. And when that person yelled out the window, the attacker did, in fact, leave. So the police... Um, I think what I read initially believed that this was more mostly just a domestic dispute and didn't really immediately respond to the situation. The attacker eventually did come back, but at that point Katie had or Kitty had sort of made her way to the door which was locked and nobody could really see her there and she was too weak to make a lot of noise and uh, and also you're thinking 3 a.m. and most people are asleep. Yeah. So uh, the attacker did finish um, killing Kitty at that point. But I mean, this just kicked off this this wave of research and sort of social psychology, which um, you can jump into that. Yeah. So it immediately. So 
what I read was that, that um, and we just need to underlie this with like, this is a horrible situation that yeah. was like, you know, a case studied essentially that turned into this whole line of research. Like, I don't want to forget the person behind this. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. So the, I read that the, the New York times reported over 30 people had apparently heard or saw to some extent of this. And that's yeah, kind of like completely incorrect. <laughs> yeah. And that was kind of the, um, the basis I think of this line of research was a lot of people, uh, were a lot of people had saw something happened and didn't do anything like boom that's where this line of research like started off yeah at. basically and so man can't you just hear like the news report in like a 60s era voice that, like woman attack in her apartment building in the morning 30 onlookers did nothing you're pretty good at that thanks um yeah so so that's what happened and i think it was darley and i don't know how to say the last name latani i don't know i'm gonna go with latani i'm probably butchering that and i'm so sorry but they, in 1968, came out with, like, the original bystander effect study. Some of the things that I pulled from this was they they had set up, and there's been a lot of different studies looking at this and replications and, like, kind of alterations. So I'm going to speak a little in, like, overgeneralizations here. But largely what was found is as if you had set up a situation that kind of mimics this. So typically they were... Um, you come in and someone instructs you to do something. I think the main original one and one that's been replicated the most was you come in, you're sitting down and you're listening to something. And all of a sudden the person starts to, uh, state they have some sort of health implications that are going on. The question was, how long does it take for that person to get up and go notify the experimenters that like, Hey, I think something's going on here. So the people who were in the audience were, they didn't really, they didn't know they were, that was part of the experiment. Yep, correct. Got it. And so they are typically in like a room sitting by themselves on the, one of the variables that are altered is like how many people are in that room with them mm -hmm. as confederates, essentially. Like they know what's going on. Um, and the person, the main person there doesn't know that those people are confederates, hence confederates. And so... That's kind of the typical situation. Some alterations are like they might be sitting in a room and working on some paperwork and some smoke starts to come from underneath a door, right? So there's some alterations and it's been studied uh, even I think a little bit publicly through those sort of like mimicking those performance arts uh, that you, you gave us an example of. Mm -hmm. And so in general, with all of these sort of the different uh, ways in which you can look at this, the number of people in the room or in the situation uh, was the number one factor that people looked at. And largely, if you're alone, you're going to respond in a way and such. You go tell somebody and you like say, hey, this is a problem um, the most. But if you have more people in the room, that's going to diminish over the number of people there. So the original study was like alone. It was somewhere around 81% of the time people within six minutes would tell the experimenters like, hey, something's going on here. I think that you should go check out. Um, and when it was two people were in the room with that person, it dropped to 60-ish percent of the people actually did something within the six minutes and then uh, with their five people in the room it was around 30 percent or so of those people did something in those six minutes does that make sense mm -hmm. okay so imagine that just kind of like generally is seen in this research now when we talk about research and we see these consistent patterns over time we're like what do we usually do like we're like hey this is something that's being replicated and kind of seen right like there is some sort of effect here right yeah and so 
there's different ways in which this was interpreted. One of the main ones that I saw is that there's these various rules that we form, and it's assumed that people make these rules. Now, I don't know where like they're getting these rules from. It's like these social norms, I guess, that are just like made up in our head and everyone agrees to all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, obviously, we've talked in other episodes that they can come from so many different places and, and how we're raised and our experiences with those types of situations, our level of training, yeah. what the general context is. But I mean, I just generally sort of speaking where those rules come from, I think um, is going to be, I'm without having the data in front of me, uh, we can always sort of say this is going to be at least part of the culture. Yes. And so the way in which I saw it, so either the researchers or the people talking about the research generally would describe it in the sense of like there's two types of rules, like the we should help rule versus the we should sit around and do what everyone else is doing rule. And what I guess I was bringing up is like, I don't know where these rules are coming from per se, but that is the description of like, oh, I guess that's like their end goal. Their end thing is like, oh, we have these rules. And when we form these rules, that's the explanation of why this event's happening. And that's not good enough for me. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's fair. And also uh, it's one of those things where that's just sort of an interpretation of the data that doesn't have a control or any real experiment to show that that's what's going on. And they didn't isolate that variable. So it was more of just a hypothesis about what could be taking place without um, data to back it up. And data in this situation would be pretty difficult to collect, um, which we'll be talking about data in an upcoming episode and how difficult that is to collect. Um, but yeah, there were some things that you actually sort of brought this up, but to point out, so one thing that we said about the, the, the bystander effect, it's not just the fact that people don't do anything, but also maybe how long it takes for them to intervene, um, as part of it. But then there's also a really important caveat in here in terms of how this research was actually conducted. Yeah. So it's always very important in like, how was your design actually set up and what questions we were asking and what, what were you doing and what weren't you doing as well? I think the, what weren't you doing is sometimes miss, like it's not dropped in there. Right. And so it can be really important in understanding maybe why the results turned out the way they did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was, if I can, uh, I guess be the person to say, like, I think that was kind of overlooked for a while in these research lines. And so there was one interesting thing that was done by Fisher et al. 2011, where they they kind of looked at the different research that had been done, and they kind of looked at whether or not their the people, the Confederates, were told to be passive and instructed to be passive, kind of like bystanders and watching and not do anything, versus be active and actually like initiate or like go with the idea of like we should be helping in these situations. Got it. And that provides exactly like pretty much the f complete opposite effect when people were told to be active as these confederates in these situations and so what's very interesting to me is that it's no longer really then the bystander effect if you tell these confederates to be active it's kind of like the helper effect like <laughs> you you see the opposite effect happening here so basically what what you're saying is that if they told the people who were observing or they were going into a situation where they had to, where there was going to be an emergency. If they had given them the instruction beforehand to uh, watch and see what happens, to be passive, basically, that they were then less likely to respond. And in a way, they were helping out the experimenter by following their instructions. Versus if they were told to do something, then they would jump in and do something. Yes. Yeah, so, so it's almost like 
if the bystander effect were a real problem we were seeing everywhere, then a basic inoculation would be to just get on the news and, and or have the White House tweet out to the American people and say, uh, if you see something, do something. And then, boom, you've got it cured. Everyone who sees that tweet is going to go take care of it. Yeah. So the original idea was that there was some sort of diffusion responsibility that was occurring. And then it kind of shifted into, I saw another explanation was like, oh, you have these different rules that people are conforming to. And then this one kind of proposed, like, maybe it's a level of uncertainty and we need to dive into uncertainty, like how certain or uncertain are we in a certain situation, um, which, again, doesn't provide a super thorough, like, thing for me. I'm not like, personally happy of, like, oh, it's uncertainty. That's what's going on in these situations. Yeah, that'd be a hard one to test out as well. But it, like, was a really good way to look at this sort of data, like what's actually going on, right? Yeah, absolutely. In these situations. And so... I guess that's my summary and understanding of some of the different social psychology um, approaches to understanding this phenomenon. Well, there was another one that I read about that I thought was pretty interesting was a social psychology researcher. He also sort of believed that there was there was more going on to this bystander effect. And he put forth a hypothesis that when people were in a group and they knew the other people of the group, that really the social context inside of that group dynamic would work as a cue for taking action for being responsible. And so he set up some studies where people could see who was being a bystander and who was contributing to a situation, um, looking at like who, uh, and he, I think he did it virtually. So they had to like type something in on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically you could sit there and do nothing, but it would show that you sat there and do nothing. So at the opportunity to respond, a lot more people jumped in and responded. Then when he took away that people could see who you, like who you were, if you just had a camera pointed at you, I, I might be remembering this slightly different than how he did it but it was just uh, interesting to see it was something about if there was a camera pointed at you or something that that again facilitated that worked as a cue for people were more likely to take action as a cue of I have a social responsibility in this context and so again it's not just that the number of people predicts it's sort of uh, what the context of that situation means um, to the person who's experiencing it there's another Changing gears a little bit is that so we've talked about the fact that there is um, there was this original sort of idea about what the bystander effect is and how prevalent it is and what it actually looks like when it's played out. But and then we've talked about some of the considerations around that in terms of what other kind of variables might be important in understanding why people are likely to be a bystander in situations but then there's also this other angle of why do people do these you know super heroic things why do people jump in and if the bystander effect is that prevalent it shouldn't make sense that you see people who will willingly put themselves in harm's way to help another person mm-hmm. again in large group settings i recently heard a story that was on one of the podcasts i listened to where there was a guy who's on a subway platform and if you are in an urban area where you have subways, you know how incredibly packed those places are with people. They're very full um, in the middle of the day. And um, someone who was on the platform had a seizure, fell onto the tracks. And this guy um, who was there with his daughters, he jumped onto the tracks and covered this person with his body to basically put him out of harm's way of the, of the oncoming train. And they were both okay. Um, you know, he basically just stopped him from flailing about and getting himself run over. Um, and they ended up being okay, but it was, you know, the fact that he responded immediately in this situation in a large group of people, um, that just shows like there might be this bystander effect 
here and there, but like you also see the opposite of that. You mm-hmm. see like the people who the there's a lot of people around and people immediately jump in and take action. There was another story I have about when um, I was working with an individual with an intellectual disability, and this particular individual had some, um, they had some behaviors that were a little bit dangerous, both to themselves and others, and we were instructed to do a temporary a temporary physical restraint in the immediate events to prevent the onset of harm. And um, what that looks like essentially is is restraining their arms so that they can't they can't hurt other people. Well, we were working on a socialization program with this individual out in the community, and he escalated really fast. And we uh, implemented this procedure, and immediately upon doing so, we were accosted by all of these people around us. So, what are you doing to that person? Leave him alone! And so we had to sort of both try and keep that person safe, ourselves safe, and give them our, the, we carried information cards on us that said what we were doing and all that sort of stuff. And nevertheless, people were calling the police and um, all that sort of thing. And we had to go through and give our, our account of the situation, what had taken place. And we were able to get, get out of there safely. Um, ever, everyone was, but like, that was just another situation where in a public place, immediately five people were there, you yeah. know, jumping into what, what they perceived to be some kind of emergency where I guess they thought we were mulling some kid in a parking lot for yeah, some yeah. reason. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that people are worried about that and it's actually cool to see that response from the public. Right? Yeah. No, that, that's what I'm saying. Like it was, it was great that you see those kind of things that people are willing to jump in. Yeah. Um, I've been in similar circumstances with different people for similar reasons, right? Like you're working with a, a client of some sort. Right. And um, yeah, I've had someone claim that they were an FBI agent uh, before. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure like I need to see some sort of form of identification to yeah. like, be actually like, uh, you know, like you can't Weird. be just claiming that. Um, the guy disappeared before the cops actually showed up because mm. we called the cops ourselves as a part of the process. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just, it gets really messy really quick yeah really quick absolutely um messy in the sense of like there's just a lot going on there's a lot to process delegate understand calm down everything right Mm -hmm. yeah um so yeah i think i don't know if it's too early but i think that uh one thing that largely goes into this is the have you had explicit training under these circumstances right Right. yeah the conditions themselves like i feel like if I were to overgeneralize, like somebody with military background would probably be a little more responsive in general than um, somebody in just out of high school, right? Yeah, and actually, I, I had made a note in here that I was thinking, what if there were um, like an EMT convention where you have a bunch of like trained medical professionals, and right outside there's like some kind of medical crisis that takes place? You're gonna have five thousand people descend on that situation immediately. Yeah. You know, I just thought that'd be a funny. Yeah. Again, counter argument. And just and mostly just to highlight the point of it's not just the number of people. Like there's more to yeah. it than that. So so this is a good segue. One thing that I had found on uh, kind of a more recent ish post, I think it was two thousand fifteen on psychology today, was uh, Rosemary Sword and Philip Zimbardo uh, posted an article talking about their kind of angle and it seems like they were trying to coin um, their own term, or at least talk about it in a different way, and they called these effects of people not really moving around. It was known as pluralistic ig- ignorance. And the idea here is when the group's majority privately believes one thing and mistakenly assumes that most others believe the opposite. And so that was what they suggested, and what I 
what I largely saw, I don't know what you found was people were trying to create training programs and like awareness strategies around like, Hey, we just need one person to start acting in those situations. Did yeah. you find something similar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and have been in situations like that. And, you know, basically what I've seen, uh, sort of recommended, as you just said, was that it's the whole going back to the, if you see something, say something sort of thing. Yeah. You really only need, you know, one or two people. Um, there was, randomly one time I was running an errand it was probably nine o'clock at night or so and there's an there's an underpass of a freeway that's relatively close to my house and for some reason there was a car that was entirely on fire underneath the underpass it wasn't even on the road it was off the road but it was completely engulfed in flames and so immediately I called the police and uh, and they said oh yeah we've had like 35 calls about this already in the last 10 minutes yeah so they knew what was going on but yeah that was um the general recommendation being that, but I mean, you do tend to see that people will do that anyway in a lot of circumstances. And there also can be the effect of this pluralistic ignorance where you see it and say, well, someone else probably already called about that. Well, and often, more often than not, when I see an emergency situation, I'm catching it when people have already responded or are in the act of responding to it. Yeah. So that's not like, I'm not claiming ignorance that someone else is going to do it. I'm seeing them doing it. Yes, exactly. And that was what I was describing when I was talking about the car wrecks that have like been right seconds from like or seen like there's already so many people involved um i i've learned to ask uh certain questions i guess of like what's being covered and if everything's being covered then i do kind of step back from the situation um but yeah so i've seen a lot of people touting like oh we just need one person um zimbardo said he launched a program but then i clicked the link and it was dead so <laughs> i assume that's i assume that's uh not happening anymore um, but I wouldn't know cause it was just a dead 404 screen on a page. Okay. So, um, updated in 2001. Yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. Don't leave websites empty. It costs like $12 to like leave a page that says, you know, like we're no longer doing this. Right. But I'm being yeah. picky. <laughs> All right. So what are some other views as to like why this happens? Like, what do you, what do you think? Well, okay. So let's, let's go ahead and start with the. The description of the fact that this can this can happen. There can be a situation where there's a large group of people and part of the consideration as someone who's a part of that group is that there's a lot of people here. Someone else will do something. I'm not in a good position to do this. I don't understand what's happening. There could be a lot of things that are that are going on. Um, but this can be a situation that happens. And because at least partially because there's a large group, nobody reacts. Okay. The extent to which that occurs seems to be not really that well understood. There's a lot of people who are still doing research on this. A lot of research has been done on this, some showing exactly the opposite of this effect, depending on the circumstances. Another thing I think that's really useful to consider is how this might vary across cultures. Um, this one, the Kitty Genevieve story was here in the United States, but if you're in a culture maybe where group participation is a lot more important and more heavily emphasized, then it's possible that you never see something like the bystander effect, right? That was, that was something that our own uh, Shane Spiker commented on the post that we put up on Facebook about this. So his thing was, what about a brief discussion on the flight or flight freeze and kind of like how this may be impacted by culture, legality, and those sort of things? Um, yes, which I have a thing about the the flight, fright, freeze in okay, a second. Okay, cool. um, I so yeah, I think, I think so culture comes into play. I personally like understanding the differences between cultures and like just like it's hard to sort out. Like, yes, there's effects, I guess, is my statement. Right. But um, in my position. But 
holy cow, is that like a lot of data to sort out and really understand? It is. And I mean, it's it's also easy to just say, oh, it's just the culture and have that be sort of an easy scapegoat to answer a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And so I think to maybe put it in terms that make a little bit more sense, it's to say that having or living in a particular setting where the people around you are likely to um, favor certain types of behaviors and to discourage or punish other types of behaviors. That's sort of what we mean when we're saying that there's a culture that exists. And yes, there there definitely needs to be more said about that to understand how that really plays a role and whether we're just sort of saying culture to sound like we know what we're talking about or whether mm-hmm. there are really good studies to show that yes, this does in fact change across cultures. It's just important to consider that just because this has shown up in certain situations, you shouldn't, I think, just assume that it will then exist as a product of being a human being yeah yeah. and yeah so it's basically it's just more complicated than the fact that if the group is large someone's unlikely to help it's really i think worth considering what each person is experiencing psychologically when they're in a situation as a bystander okay yes perfect so we we've talked in the past i think it was the memory episode uh there's different cues right and right all of us can respond to cues in different ways like we're affected by different like every that's just it's evolving and always changing and those might be and those are going to be different for each person and and they might even change for each person as they go through life experiencing new situations yeah so i I brought this up earlier that like there maybe maybe it might be an untypical condition that we're not used to and there's different cues going on and we just do you you highlight on it too like we don't know how to react in the situation right well and yeah i mean hopefully you're not in a world where you're just constantly seeing emergency after i mean there will be some professions where that's the case but for most people you're going around you're not just living in a world where it's non-stop emergency so yeah it is it's a totally different situation and as you said that's not a cue that's really strong because most of us don't have a lot of learning around that cue yeah so one i guess one understanding of like why this happens is i would say everybody individually um has a different set of reactions to different cues and those things have been shown to be learned and can adapt over time. And that's why we have things like training, right? Yeah, absolutely. On the job training and refresher training. And like, I feel like life is just a continual kind of refresher. (laughs) And sure. Like every time I go to sit down to edit video right now, like I relearn things and like I have to kind of get used to it again. Right. Piggybacking on this idea of training, the experiences you have up to that point are your training. So for example, I live in a neighborhood where at two in the morning, it's not uncommon to hear people like screaming and yelling at each other and people are up really late and um, you hear, you know, cars go screeching by and stuff like that. And it's just, that's a neighborhood where that sort of thing happens. And so my training living in that situation is those types of cues are not emergencies because it's only a small handful of times have they been emergencies and there is a way to sort of tell the difference at least for us um and but for the most part those things that are not emergencies there would be perceived as emergencies for people who didn't live in that type of situation my neighborhood and granted we live like two and a half miles away from each other is maybe max is the complete opposite right perfectly quiet right things going on everybody's out of their house like looking at like what's happening yeah yeah And so another thing to consider is that just thinking about you yourself, you as the listener, you, Ryan, and and me, myself, you might do the exact same thing by yourself in a crisis situation as you would do in a group in a crisis situation. And so it's not the fact that you're in a group that's going to necessarily change your response, but the context of that situation and how you or me or, you know, the listener relates to that situation. Yeah. So I, I largely was, um, 
I guess growing up kind of like the, I mean, I was like the super quiet kid. Wouldn't do much like that. And like Me too. getting into. Now we talk all the time. Yeah. And getting into, <laughs> yeah. Getting into psychology and like specifically getting some training in crisis situations. Um, I now feel like I step up to those sort of things quite often. And it's the complete opposite. And it's because these cues, um, I have a totally different training and experience with now. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel more more like I am aware enough of the type of situations that might occur that I would have the competence to do something meaningful Mm -hmm. in those situations. Yeah. So another one is just, and we sort of talked about this earlier, but a way of considering a view of how this, how you might perceive these situations is the kind of rules that you are already sort of following in your normal everyday life. And so just to sort of give you an example, you don't necessarily think about this, but one rule is that um, you tend to not walk right into someone, but you kind of veer around them. And yeah. there, you know, there are reasons for that rule to exist. It's more efficient usually to go around them. Um, it is considered rude to walk right into someone's face. Another rule is, uh, you know, parking in the lines in a parking lot. I know a lot. Of, there are many people who violate this rule, but for the most part, if you go to the parking lot, the majority of cars are parked between those lines. That's not a rule you sit down and think about and look at those and go, huh, I wonder if I should park between those lines that are right there. You know, it's just, it's something that we just sort of follow automatically. And those rules can reach into our language in how we are interacting with situations that are these emergencies, even the ones that we don't really think about in the moment. Yeah. And I guess the, the area of language and like rules that I read up on, like I haven't a looked at that recently, but I don't know of a lot of extensive research in that area. Do you Um, like in like, using that framework to understand language and rules like in this particular situation. I actually know you're right. I haven't looked at specific research and um, how people bring rules to that context. Yeah. Aside from how we, as you sort of said, the active passive one, because if you're a, someone who's gone into a situation and been told either be active or just watch that, that is a sort of implicit rule in that situation that you'd be following. Now yeah. that was not specifically set up to study rules by virtue of them being rules, but to study the uh, the influence of the experimenter on the participants, right? Yeah, if someone's looking for like a thesis or dissertation, there it is. Yeah, yeah, an entire life of research. Yeah, some kind of some kind of research project. Go for it. So one other thing that I found, and this relates to uh, Gina on Facebook commented. So we we could, we put out a, a blast for like, hey, this topic's upcoming. What do you want to What do you want us to cover? Oh man, and thank you guys for your responses. We got yeah. some just really wonderful ideas and responses from the community. So thanks. Yeah. So Gina Richards, she said, does organizational behavior management, which is an area that I don't think we've talked about yet. We maybe have alluded to. Yeah. I think we've maybe mentioned it sort of on the side, but we haven't gone in depth, but we should, that should be an upcoming. She said, do they kind of use uh, the effect to increase productivity in a sustainable way? Um, And so what kind of business or applied considerations does this thing actually have? So how are we using this is how I understand it. And Gina, the best thing that I could Fine for you, uh, specifically last night in the studio staying up, was this thing called the actively caring model. Um, it's probably the closest thing that you're looking for, but it's not for the bystander effect. So uh, it was largely used for occupational safety. Started around the late 60s, around the same time. It looks like it might have been influenced um, since the published publication started around the same time. But it's not at the heart of this bystander effect. So uh, we'll definitely include some links to that as well. 
Can you say a little bit more about the actively caring oh, model yes, and yes, what yes. it means? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. So the idea essentially to kind of, again, I feel like I'm overgeneralizing this, but it's a, a whole 50 years of research line, is they were trying to figure out how they could get people to identify uh, workplace safety issues and is part of it, but as well as say something or do something about it. And generally this line of literature looks at like, how do we prevent things by getting people to do the good things as opposed to not doing the things that are bad. So it's sort of sense? saying like everyone who's part of an organization, asking them to sort of take some amount of responsibility for when you notice something like actively contribute to solving a safety issue. Yeah. Or preventing it. So right, okay. the, yeah, from the workplace, we know that people can, uh, there's a lot of kind of corrective that happens right right so and like feedback on what you're doing wrong yeah and we don't change we don't like those sort of things and largely this area of organizational behavior management is found and what i like about it is like you need to focus on the proactive things that you do want to see instead of that and so this actively caring model really resonates with that um so if it came for example like a workplace safety maybe you're in a place where you need to be wearing uh gloves in case an emergency happens so let's say you have an emt right I'm not going to provide just negative feedback when I don't see gloves. I'm going to reward uh, to some extent when I see gloves are actively being used or even better, the preventative of like they are there and available. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, that was the closest thing I could find, Gina. Um, it does not clearly br like bring over. Um, sorry, but that's what I found. Um, and so also bringing it back to, as I mentioned earlier, this idea of the um, the fight, flight, or freeze, which I think I, I said fright earlier. <laughs> anyway, um, fight, flight, or freeze. And so this refers to, initially there was this thing called fight, um, fight or flight. And um, what that means is in a situation that is um, you're experiencing anxiety or stress or danger, your response is to either engage with the thing that is causing that feeling, to like attack it, the fight, to get away from it, the flight, or to just move, like stay still and do nothing. And um, this sort of is talked about in the cognitive literature in a way of as it being that when there is a chance that you... You, when you're coping with uh, danger, that is you're like handling it, you're getting rid of it. That's the the fight. When you are trying to get away from it um, and just escape, that's the flight. And that's when you feel like you you feel like there is a way for you to escape. So the way they talk about it is when you're more likely to try and escape. And if you do not feel like you um, can escape um, or you are hoping that you will go unnoticed, then you'll freeze. And so that's the three ways they sort of talk about it. And I think another way to talk about this is a fight is in a situation where the thing that you are motivated by is um, ending that situation by you causing that situation to end. So sort of you're, you're taking action to, to make it stop or, and then the, uh, the flight is the situation where the motivation for you is to just make it go away by getting as far away from it as possible by putting, you know, increasing distance or whatever um, between you and the thing. And then uh, the freeze is when you, um, you're simply motivated, motivated to minim minimize the amount of damage that you're going to take um, as much as possible. And so those are, I think some just different ways of talking about where the motivation lies with respect mm -hmm. to those phenomenon, rather than just when you're thinking about this, um, and more like in a freeze situation, escape isn't really an option for some reason. Attack isn't really an option for some reason. So to try and minimize the amount of damage that might happen, it's just, you know, don't move sort of yeah. thing. Okay. Cool. Well said. 
All right. Ready to take this home? I am. So one thing that we're getting used to is we actually pulled all of the Facebook uh, community to say, what do you think? I missed. Uh, so we just you you just nicely hit Shane Spikers. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Um, we did not address at the right time, but Miranda, our own Miranda as well, that helps us with editing. Yay, um, Miranda. Yeah. Shout out to Miranda. Um, asked us to just kind of like lay out what we did with the the kitty. The kitty details. Genevieve says. Yeah. Just that there was a lot more than just what was originally reported. And so I think we did that justice. Thank you for that. Um, the last one was Matt Sequoia of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Yeah, shout out he's to been, the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Yeah, he's been super generous in shouting us out as well. Yeah, we owe you one. And so he was excited for us to dive into this topic since uh, it was really looking at... They were originally trying to really, I guess, get at the... How do we measure this effect, right? Yeah, right. And yeah, yeah. his shout out. So Great. Th- Thank you for that. So thank you for all the support and the engagement. We're going to make sure we link everybody into those sort of things. Your overall take-homes for the episode, though? Yeah, so although this effect, the bystander effect, it can be observed in certain circumstances, it's just it's more complicated than it seems that it's not just the number of people, that there are a lot of other factors to consider, including those personal factors. And uh, the examples seem to be relatively rare where it really exists and that the primary variable the, uh, seems to be just the number of people. Um, and the opposite of this has happened in, in many instances as well, where you get some of that heroic effect mm-hmm. from some people. And then the last thing is just that, and as I sort of mentioned, the psychological experience of each person is important when we're trying to understand how someone makes a decision in that type of situation and how the circumstances of that event is going to be perceived and related to by you as a bystander um, and the other people that are, are around you. Perfect. Cool. So that is our episode, right? Yeah. All right. So if you've been listening in, uh, thanks as always. Uh, please share us. If you have any uh, other things you'd like to add to this discussion or if you have things that you would like to um, criticize about our discussion, please contact us. Uh, if you do, Ryan will send you some stickers. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, anyone who wants some stickers, just uh, throw a comment or you know an address somewhere. Like doesn't have to be public. And yeah. we'll, we'll kick you some. I got a lot of them sitting on. And, uh, you know, we've said before, if, if you are enjoying the show, um, you know, subscribe. That means that you won't miss any episodes. It uh, helps, the, yeah, helps the al- algorithm uh, look, uh, you know, look out for we see what kind of things people are wanting to listen to. Um, and, and review. Reviews are very helpful as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so if you didn't want to become a Patreon supporter, if you leave uh, some nice reviews for us, that also is like it's just super helpful. So brutal cool. honesty is welcomed. <laughs> yes. If you don't like it, tell us. Yep. Um, great. Anything else? That's all. All right. Perfect. Thanks for listening. This is Abraham and Ryan. O. we are out. You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why we do what we do is supported in part by ABAI's disseminating behavior analysis, special interest group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O., and Miranda. 
artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brussier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.